Father, it is a blessing to, to hear your word. It's a tremendous privilege to have it come out and wash over us from the pulpit. And I pray you'd use me as your vessel for that to take place this morning. I ask that you would, hopefully we have an anticipation of what you want to say to us, and if anyone here doesn't, then I pray that you would sovereignly give that to them. Give them an excitement about how you want to speak to them through your word. We don't expect to hear from you audibly or have any words written across the sky, but we know that you speak to us through your word. It accomplishes that great sanctifying work of conforming us into the image and likeness of your son. And so in a sense, I pray you just sort of remove me from this time, Lord, that this would be when you meet with your people, that they hear from you, that your Holy Spirit personally ministers to each person and they receive what they need to continue that walk with Christ. If there's any unbelievers who have joined us here this morning, we would especially pray for any people who think they're believers when in fact they're unbelievers. That you'd grant them repentance, that you would help give them a revelation of their sinfulness and an appreciation for the wonderful Savior that you have provided through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for him. We love him and even pray that this sermon would grow our, our faith in Christ and our love for him and what he's done for us. And so I thank you for this time, Lord. Pray you can be lifted up and pleased with it, that you'd be glorified and receive the honor you deserve. And just use me as your weak vessel to accomplish that work through me, Lord, to reach these people here. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. The title of this morning's sermon is Poor Spiritual Leadership, Poor Spirit, or The Consequences of Poor Spiritual Leadership, excuse me. This morning's message is going to have a strong focus on fathers, and so you might think, well, is there application for anyone else? There is. There's definitely application for everyone else, because if you're a wife, you want to know what's expected of your husband so that you can support him in his spiritual leadership in the home. If you're a young man, then you're probably going to be married, and so I appreciate what Pastor Kerry said earlier, because it's very unfortunate when people start preparing for marriage after their Okay, nobody really got that there, so let's try that one more time. It's unfortunate when people start preparing for marriage after they're married. Yeah, that's like studying for a test, you know, the day of a test, or planning for retirement when you're retired. And so I think it's great that he invited all of you out. And so similarly, if you're a young man and you're preparing, uh, looking forward to being married um, someday, then it's important for you to know what it means to be a spiritual leader. And if you're a young lady looking forward to being married, then you're going to want to Look for a husband who is a spiritual leader and know how best to support him. <clears throat> and I would say even if you never marry, then you're going to be in the church with people who are married. You're going to have the opportunity to minister to them and invest in them. And so you'll need to know what is expected of men and, and, uh, and their wives and how best to minister to them. So there's really application for all of us in this morning's sermon. I'd like to begin by looking at Genesis 31.13. If you would turn there, please. Genesis 31, 13, a few verses there before we jump over to Genesis 34. I just realized something. My wife typically tells me when to slow down. She goes like this, or actually she's heard me preach so much she can finish many of my sentences, so if she knows I'm starting to say something that I shouldn't say, she goes like this to me. But she is behind that glass, and I can't see her in there. And so I'm going to need some of you, if I'm talking too fast, to go like this. And I guess if I start to say something I shouldn't, then you can also go like that to me, too, okay? So I'm counting on some of you to keep me in line this morning. I'm feeling very, you know, liberated without my wife. I might say something wild or crazy, you know, so <laughs> help me out. Okay, Genesis 31:13. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a... Oh, God is speaking to Jacob, and he says to Jacob, I'm the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So Jacob has just recently fled from his uncle Laban and God met him and told him to return to Bethel where he had that famous dream of the ladder that stretched between heaven and earth with the angels ascending and descending on it. <clears throat> now look at Genesis thirty-three eighteen to see if Jacob went to Bethel like God commanded. He received the command to go to Bethel in Genesis 31. Look in Genesis 33:18. Let's see if he went to Bethel like God commanded. Genesis 33:18. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. This is not Bethel, is it? Which is in the land of Canaan. On his, excuse me, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. So he settles in Shechem, and where does it say Shechem is located? 
This isn't a trick question. Look in the verse. All right, now, when we hear that, does that make us think of a good, moral, godly place or an ungodly place? I mean, the inhabitants are so wicked that within uh, a few centuries, they're going to have to be exterminated. That's how evil this place was. And so does it seem like a good idea or a bad idea for Jacob to settle his family here? Bad idea. Yeah, there's only about three of you that said that. So let me ask one more time. Seem like a good idea or a bad idea for Jacob to... Bad idea, definitely. So you could read this and you could say, well, maybe he's just stopping here for a moment and then he's going to be on his way. I wish that was the case. Look at verse 19. Genesis 33:19, And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father... He bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar, and he called it El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. And so he purchased his land here, and he pitches his tent, and he builds this altar, which gives the impression that he's not going anywhere uh, anytime soon, right? He looks like he's settling in this land plans to stay here for some amount of time. And you could look at this and say, well, he's delaying in obeying God, and it's a small compromise that's not going to have really serious consequences. This small compromise on Jacob's part is going to have terrible consequences for him and for many others. And I want you to notice that it says he erected an altar here. And this is interesting to me because right in the middle of this disobedience that he's engaging in, we also see him doing something that looks godly. Uh, or, or looks worshipful. He constructs this altar, and I think he's doing something that we can all fall susceptible to, and this brings us to lesson one on your, do you have your, your handouts? Do you have handouts? Lesson one on your handout, please. Sacrifice is no substitute for obedience. Sacrifice is no substitute for obedience. And while you're looking at that on the back, there's a family worship guide. So since we're talking this morning about men being spiritual leaders in their homes, one of the greatest ways for you to do that is to gather your family for prayer and to gather your family around the Word of God. And hopefully this can supplement you doing that by giving you at least three days worth of activities with some verses to read and questions to talk about as a family. So if you're convicted by this morning's sermon and you want to be a spiritual leader in your home, then one of the first things you can do as you begin your week tomorrow is to start gathering your family around the word regularly if you don't already do that. Now, let me ask you, what did God want? God wanted Jacob to go to Bethel. Did he, want God, did, did he want Jacob to build an altar? No, that wasn't what God wanted. There was no, and I would say like this, there were no amount of altars that Jacob could build or there were no amount of sacrifices that Jacob could offer that could take the place of doing what God wanted him to do. There were no number of altars or sacrifices he could offer that could take the place of the obedience that God wanted from him. First Samuel fifteen twenty two. Does the Lord or has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen or to heed is better than the fat of rams. And so, sacrifices are no substitute for obedience. This has application for all of us. Because as fathers, there are lots of sacrifices that we can make, or there, I would probably say there are lots of sacrifices that as fathers we are making. We work hard to take care of our families. We work hard to make sure that we pay bills on time so that the water and the electricity stays on so we can have a roof over our family's head. We, we might work very hard around the house to make sure that the house our family lives in is nice. But no matter how hard we might work or no matter how many sacrifices we might offer for our families or even we might think we're offering them to the Lord, they're no substitute for the obedience that God wants from us regarding the two primary commands that he has given us as men or given us as fathers and husbands. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So a man could never work hard enough or sacrifice enough that it could ever take the place of obeying this command and striving to love our wives as Christ loves the church. Ephesians 6.4, here's the other command for men. Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So God wants us to teach our children about him, no matter how hard we might work around the house or in the workplace. There are no sacrifices that could ever take the place of raising and, and training our children to know the Lord at the earliest possible age, reading the word with them, teaching them the word, bringing them to a Bible teaching church, which if you're here today, then then, uh, that's commendable commendable as a father. That's something you're already doing. In fact, ladies, I would say if you're 
here with your husband, and your husband chose to give up his Sunday morning to bring his family, his wife and his children to church, that's a commendable thing that you should appreciate him doing. And there, but there's no substitute for that. There are no sacrifices that could be offered to take the place of a father teaching his children to know and love the Lord. As mothers, <clears throat> there's lots of sacrifices you can make, and it seems especially with feminism and with women's lib, there's no end to the number of sacrifices that, that women will offer as they attempt to you know, climb in the, in the career world. But if you look at the obedience that God wants from women, it's laid out. There's a nice list there for you in Titus 2. It says women should love their husbands and their children. They should be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their husbands. And that's what the Word of God says. That's not my opinion about how women strive to obey the Lord or that these are the sacrifices that God wants from wives and mothers. These are the sacrifices um, that there's no, there's no sacrifices that could be offered that could take the place of obeying these commands here. As children, there's one primary command for you. Your life is pretty easy when you're a child, to be honest with you. I wouldn't have thought that when I was a young person, but I, I'll tell you, and it's the truth, your life is so easy at this time because you don't have to make major decisions about where to live, what job to take. I mean, if you're particularly young, then you don't even have to worry about who to marry. Your, your life really is as simple as obeying your parents. That's how simple your life is. And when you get older and life becomes more complicated, you might look back and realize how easy you had it when you were a child and you had your parents' protection over you, directing your life. And so I would say to you, the, the command for you, Ephesians 6, 2, and 3, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And so if you're a child, that's the obedience that, that God wants. There's nothing else you could ever do as a child that would ever take the place of what he primarily wants from you, which is you obeying your parents and, and honoring them. And so Jacob's example here, just to bring you back to it, teaches us that God does not want sacrifices. He doesn't want some number of sacrifices from us. What he wants is obedience in those areas that he has commanded us. And the command that had been given to Jacob was to go to Bethel. Now, if Jacob would have obeyed God, we wouldn't have to read this terrible chapter, uh, Genesis 34. So if you look there with me, that's where we'll be for most of the rest of this study. Genesis 34, look at verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Now since Dinah was Jacob's only daughter, and she had how many brothers? How many brothers does she have? She had 12 brothers, didn't have any sisters, so it says here she goes out to see the daughters of the land, or she's looking for, for female fellowship. But when it says of the land, again, what land is this? Canaan. She's going to look for fellowship from Canaanite women. And I want to ask you a few questions. Should Dinah be going out looking for female friends in, in Canaan? Is this the kind of fellowship that she should have with pagan women who are going to be destroyed within a few centuries because of their wickedness? Definitely not. Second, um, should she be going alone with, like this? That's one of the other things that you notice is that she's by herself. And then I guess the third question I'd ask is, is this really her fault? Is this really her fault? Whose fault is this truly? It was Jacob's fault. It was Jacob's fault. He's in an area where he doesn't know the people and he's allowing his daughter to go out like this. Or worse, he does know the people. There's really no defense for Jacob in allowing his daughter to go like this. And so what could he have done? He could have told her not to go, or he could have told her, you can go, but you need to bring one or 12 <laughs> of your brothers with you when you go out like this. And this brings us to lesson two. A father's compromise endangers his family. A father's compromise endangers his family. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Maybe I even mentioned it last time I was here. I don't remember because I, I know I said it a number of times to my congregation. One of the ways that you can make sure you don't miss those things in Scripture that God wants to make sure you don't miss is you look for repetition. Repetition is God's way of making sure that we don't miss those points or those lessons that, you know, he doesn't use asterisks or highlighting or, or underlining in his word. He doesn't even use capitalization, but what he does use is repetition. So whenever you see something repeated in God's word, if you've ever heard a liberal person who says that's a mistake in scripture, you can respond by saying, no, this is clearly something God wants to make sure we don't miss, which is why he's repeated it two or three times. 
And one of the things that I see repeated in Scripture is that men can make decisions with their families that endanger their families, endanger their wives, endanger their children. We see this a number of times, especially in the Old Testament. For example, does anyone remember when Abraham endangered his wife twice? Where did he take her? Took her to Egypt. She found herself in the harem of a pagan king in Genesis 12 and 20. Does anyone, can anyone think of the danger? Where did Lot bring his family? What sort of danger did he introduce into the lives of his, of his wife and then into his children? I mean, he tried to save them. He reaches out to grab them, to deliver them from the city. And how do they respond? They laughed because he had been such a poor spiritual leader in his home. He had no credibility with them. So even when he was trying to save their lives, they turned and they, they ridiculed him because they thought that he was joking around about the city being destroyed. So you've got Abraham, you've got Lot. You think about Isaac, the, the, apparently the apple doesn't fall very far, far from the tree, or like father, like son, because where did Isaac take his wife to Egypt and, and engaged in the same lie that she was his, his sister? In Genesis 26, he fo- followed his father's example and it endangered Rebekah. So then remember what happened when there was a famine in the land during the days of the judges and Elimelech decided it would be a good idea to take his family out of, out of the promised land and bring them into the land of Moab. And then what sort of problems were there for, for him associated with that? And so to me, when I see these decisions that fathers make and the number of consequences or problems associated with it, it makes me think God wants to make sure that we don't miss this, that we see it's very significant, the decisions that we make. I was actually just talking with Pastor Kerry the other day and he was... It was yesterday, and he was sharing with me, thought it was very honorable that when they were in Germany, they were being forbidden from homeschooling, and he was willing to take his family, not just out of the country, but to the other side of the world, back to the United States, where he could raise his children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and not have them ruined by the school system there. And so this is not a commentary on homeschooling or putting your children in public schools, but at least in Germany and what would have been involved there. And so he was willing to leave the mission field and come back home. And so to me, I think it's very important that we consider the, the, where we bring our families and, and what they do. As fathers, we don't want to follow the examples of these men and put our families in compromising or dangerous situations. We have to be very intentional. We have to be intentional and purposeful leaders in our home. We have to think about where we take our families, um, what we let them do, where, what we don't let them do, where we don't let them go. And if I can just have the attention of the young ladies, if all the young ladies will look at me for a moment, I want to say something to you. If you have a father who would not let you do what Jacob let Dinah do, or in other words, you have a father who has ever told you, you will not go there, or you will not go out with them, or, or your father, maybe you've even felt like your heart was set on a young man, and your father said, I don't think he's best for you. I don't want you seeing him, or I don't want to see this relationship progressing. Or your father has said, I don't think you should wear that. I think it'll draw uh, ungodly attention to you. If you have a father who discourages you from keeping certain company, or if your father has, or maybe, let me say it like this, if you have ever said, well, my dad doesn't let me, and then fill in the blank, let me tell you what you need to do, ladies. You need to thank your father. You need to thank your father. You need to thank God, too, for giving you a godly father. You need to... <laughs> I don't get a lot of clapping in my sermons. That surprised me a little bit there. So I hope that was a clap for the fathers, and I mean that. So if you're a young lady and you have a father who has told you, no, you won't do that, you won't go there, you won't wear that, you need to thank God for giving you that father because there are a lot of young ladies who don't have that father or don't have a father who would do that. The other, about a month ago, we're driving home late as a family probably 10 at night, there was this young lady. I don't remember exactly what she was wearing, but I can say this. When I caught a glimpse of her, I knew that I had to rip my eyes away. So that gives you an idea what she looked like, walking by herself 10 o'clock at night down the side of the road. Now, my first thought was really, where is her father? If he's in the picture, why would he allow his daughter to be out like that? Why would he allow his daughter to to dress like that? I mean, my hope is maybe her father isn't in the picture because at least then there might be some possible defense or excuse for what I was witnessing. But the fact is, ladies, if you have a father you sh- who, who says no or who protects you, then you shouldn't feel frustrated or angry. You should feel very thankful because you have a father who is showing himself to treat you, his daughter, better than Jacob is treating Dinah. You have a father who's setting a better example than one of the patriarchs himself. And you need to recognize that he doesn't like being the bad guy. 
It's not like he wants you to be angry with him, but he cares more about you and he loves you enough to have you be angry with him when he knows that that's what's in your best interest. Now, since Jacob didn't protect his daughter, it didn't take long for something terrible to happen to her. Go ahead and look in verse 2 with me. When Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, he saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, and he humiliated her, and his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. Notice this, it says he loved the young woman, he loved Dinah, and spoke tenderly to her. I'll bring that up later in the sermon, why that's significant. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, and he said, get me this girl for my wife. Verse 5, now Jacob heard that he, that Shechem, had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. He didn't say anything. Verse 6, Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men, this is Jacob's sons, or Dinah's 12 brothers, they were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter Dinah, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, the soul of my son Shechem, this is Shechem's father Hamor, and he speaks to the sons, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. And then notice this in verse 9, make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Now, I want you to think about something for a moment. You're looking at the entire nation of Israel right here in this family, in Jacob and his sons. Do you consider that? This is the entire nation of Israel. This is the future of God's people right here. And what are the Shechemites trying to do with these 12 sons? Intermarry with them. Intermarry with them. Destroy their their holiness, their, their separateness here. And this brings us to the next part, or to lesson three. The world wants to assimilate our families. The world wants to assimilate our families. One of the greatest responsibilities that God's people had in the Old Testament was staying holy or staying set apart. If they weren't to stay holy or separate, and it's very much the same today, then they weren't going to be much of a witness to the surrounding nations, to the pagans and Gentiles. And you see how the Shechemites right here are trying to destroy that separateness. They want their daughters to marry their sons. They want their sons to marry their daughters. They want them to become part of them. And I'll say that nothing has changed today. Nothing has changed today. The attack or the way that Satan wanted to work here in Genesis 34, assimilating Jacob and his family into these pagan Canaanites is the exact same way that Satan wants to work today in assimilating our families, preventing them from being holy and separate, causing them to become more like the world. And so one of the greatest responsibilities that God's people have, whether it's the Old Testament or whether it's the New Testament, is staying holy and set apart. And so just like Jacob needed to protect his family from being assimilated by these people, we have a responsibility as fathers to protect our families and keep them from being assimilated by the world, preventing the world from coming into our families into our homes, but also doing what we can to ensure that our families are not going out and being assimilated by the world. And so, gentlemen, if I can have your attention, this is why I would say to you, you are responsible with what influences your family. Brothers, you need to be aware of what your family watches. There has to be some number of things that you say no to. You have to be aware of what your family listens to. You should be aware of the jokes that are shared in your home and the appropriateness of them. And if they're inappropriate, then to consider that God says there should be no coarse jesting. You should be aware of the way that your family dresses, especially the way that your, that your girls dress. You need to be aware of the company that your family keeps. And I would say perhaps one way to do that if you're trying to reach out to an unbelieving family and share Christ with them is you might allow them to come to your home where it's kind of on your territory but you might not let your family go to their home where you're not sure what they're going to see or what they're going to hear. You need to be aware of how your family spends their time. Gentlemen, we need to be aware of what our families do recreationally and not just what our families do, but how much time they spend doing it. I'm not going to say from behind the pulpit that you can't watch movies or television or play video games or any number of things, but I would definitely say you shouldn't be doing it for too many hours per day. Does that sound reasonable? 
even if, I, even if I'm, I'm not going to pry into your homes and say that you shouldn't have this or that, but I will say, even if there are some things you have the liberty in Christ to have or engage in, you don't have the liberty in Christ to engage in it for six, eight, ten hours per day. Then you know that you're bordering on, on an addiction or an obsession. And so as a result, there are going to be times when as fathers, we're going to have to say no to things. <clears throat> it's going to be hard. We're going to have to be the bad guy. There was recently something in our home, and I know, I know a lot of people might look in and think that it wasn't particularly threatening. In fact, it wasn't, but I just was kind of looking at the end of this, and if our children started doing this at this age in their life, what it might look like down the road for them. And I'm de- deliberately being vague, but the point is, I had to say no. I mean, there was crying. I was like my family's enemy that day. <laughs> you wouldn't believe how many people were crying about this in my family. And so the point is, it was not enjoyable. I definitely didn't want to be the bad guy and have to say no to this, but this is what's involved if we're going to protect our families. If I can address the children, if all the children will look up at me, I want to let you know it is hard being a dad. It is hard being a father. I want you to have some appreciation and sensitivity toward your fathers and the difficult job that rests on their shoulders. I want you to consider that they love you. They want, we want to see our children be happy. We, our mission in life is not to make you unhappy. And so I want you to understand that when, we, when your father says no to you, it's because we think that's what's in your best interest. We're trying to protect you. We love you. In, in the wisdom God has given us, we're making the decision that we think is best for you. And so please, children, be sensitive to that. Be sensitive to the responsibility on your father's shoulders and the, the difficult job that we're trying to do in the, in the best we can. I appreciate the language in Hebrews 12. God can discipline perfectly, but what does it say about earthly fathers? We're doing what seems best to us. That's what it says in Hebrews 12, that, that uh, as fathers, we're disciplining as seems best to us. We're doing the best we can. And so have some, be, you know, have some grace for us. Be patient with us and understand that we're just making the decisions that we think are, are best for our families. It's harder to say no. It is a lot easier to just say what? Yes, go ahead. And I know fathers like that. I know men who allow their families, their children, to go out like sheep among the wolves to their own detriment because it's too hard for them to say no. They, they either don't have the courage, they, they don't have the discipline to tell their children, no, it's easier to, to say, I don't want to have to put my foot down regarding this music or this show or this location or this activity, so I'll just say yes, and I'll just, I'll just let them do it. And so be thankful if you have a father who's not like that, and if you're listening and you have been a father like that, then what can you do today? You can repent. You can make a decision today that you're going to do things differently. You can be thankful that God allowed you to come today and learn from Jacob's example and decide that you're going to do things differently in your home, and then you can cry out to God for mercy and just pray that he would be gracious and that if you've made mistakes in the past, which every father in here, if I said who's made mistakes in the past, we all raise our hands. We've all made mistakes, and we cry out to God for mercy and say, please, Lord, be gracious toward my family and allow my children to grow better than the father that I have been at times to them and give me the wisdom to make the right decisions going forward with my children. Now, this is why at this point, we should see a verse telling us that Jacob stood up and very clearly, Jacob said something like, we will have nothing to do with your people. We will not let, I will not let my sons intermarry with your daughters and I will not let my daughter Dinah marry your son Shechem. We should see a verse like that. Unfortunately, we do not. In fact, Jacob should have said, in fact, we need to be getting on to Bethel right now, right? That's what he could have said, but there's nothing like that. So look what happens next. Verse 11, Shechem said to to her, this is Dinah's father, Jacob, and to her brothers, he says, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me or ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I'll give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. Make sure you notice this, that Jacob's sons are lying here. They answered deceitfully. They're lying because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They, these are the sons of Jacob, said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who's uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Now, I want you to notice something. We're going to have to look at a few verses, a few different verses, because it's a theme that's running through this account. Verse 4 says, Shechem spoke to his father. 
And then verse 6, it says, Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now, I don't want to sound overly simple, but who was Hamor speaking to? Who was he addressing? He was addressing Jacob. He was addressing Jacob. Even though Shechem's a grown man, the ancient world was unbelievably patriarchal, strongly patriarchal. And so if this marriage is going to take place, it's going to take place because these fathers are going to agree for that to happen. So even though Shechem, I mean, he's like the hero of the town. That's why the town is called Shechem, because everyone looked up to him. And so despite how respectfully Shechem was viewed, it was still expected that it was going to be his father, Hamor, that was going to make sure that this marriage went forward, that it would be arranged by them. But then look at verse 8 with me. Verse 8 says, Hamor spoke with them. Who is them? This isn't a trick question. Who's them? Jacob didn't become plural suddenly, right? Who is them? The brothers, the 12 sons. That's right. Verse 11 says, Shechem also said to her father, so she's speaking to Jacob, and to her brothers, because he could tell by this point who's running things and who's not running things. He could tell by this point, Jacob is not running things. His sons are going to be involved. I might as well address them too, because Jacob didn't speak up previously and all of his sons did. And then verse 13, by this point, it's moved entirely into an, uh, an agreement or relationship between Shechem and Hamor and Jacob's sons. Verse 13 says, the sons of Jacob answered. And then verse 14, they, the sons of Jacob said. So you see pretty clearly who is in charge, Jacob's sons, and who's not in charge, Jacob. So Jacob, he looks very passive throughout this account. In fact, we don't hear from Jacob until the very end after all of the damage has been done. He doesn't speak. You will not see a hint of him leading throughout this account. The entire account just characterized by his passiveness. And this brings us to lesson four. A father's passivity causes problems. Lesson four, a father's passivity causes problems. This is another theme that we can see in Scripture. If you take your minds back to the Garden of Eden, we know our minds go to the sin being Adam and Eve consuming the fruit. But if you think about how that took place, how did that actually take place? It took place because of Adam's passiveness, because he what? He heeded or he listened to the voice of his wife. That's not my opinion. In Genesis 3.17, God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, If you go a few chapters forward after Adam and Eve, you reach Genesis 16 and you see another situation where a man is passive, a father or husband is passive and it causes problems. What happened when when Sarah wasn't having the child that she expected and she says to Abraham, she says, okay, here's my maidservant Hagar. And then Abraham heeded the voice of his wife. Genesis 16 too, Sarah said to Abraham, the Lord's prevented me from bearing children. Go into the maidservant. May May it be that I'll obtain children by her. Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. It's the same words that said to to Adam, and we know this caused problems too. And the situation with Jacob is another example. Because of his passivity, before the chapter is over, his family is going to pay a terrible price, and even the Shechemites, who despite all of their wickedness should not have been treated the way that they were treated, ended up paying a terrible price because of Jacob's passivity too and not restraining his sons. And so the lesson for us as fathers is just like it caused problems for Adam, just like it caused problems for Abraham, just like it caused problems for Jacob. It causes problems for us too when we're passive in our homes. Look at verse 15 to see what happened because Jacob didn't restrain his sons. Jacob's sons are the ones who are speaking here in verse 15. They said, only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. So Jacob's sons, they acted wickedly, and something that makes it even worse was they took what was actually the sign of God's covenant with his people in the Old Testament, the sign of a relationship with with the Lord, and they used that to go about this wicked act that they perform to carry out their evil plan, you might say. So they took this, this sign that God had given to his people, and they used that to carry out their wicked plan here. So verse 16, then we'll give our daughters to you if you do this, if your men are circumcised. This is a lie. We will take your daughters to ourselves. This is another lie. 
and we will dwell with you and become one people. And that is another lie, because remember earlier I said they're speaking deceitfully. Verse 17, but if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do this thing. Shechem didn't delay to do this because he delighted in Jacob's daughter Dinah. Now he, this is Shechem, was the most honored or he's the most respected of all his house. There's something about this whole situation that can look odd at first, but I think it teaches us something important. So I want to invite you to follow me. And I want to, get it, I want to back up to get a little momentum into the, this next point. We know that Shechem did something terrible to Dinah, but I want you to notice it also, the, the text goes to lengths to show that Shechem really did care for her in his own pagan, ungodly way. Look in verse 3, it says, he loved her and he spoke tenderly to her. Verse 11 and 12 says, Shechem said he would give anything to marry her. Whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me a great bride price and gift as you will, and I will give that. So he says, I'll do anything to be able to spend my life with this woman. Verse 19 says, he didn't delay in being circumcised because he delighted in Dinah. So he's willing to go through with that as a grown man. And so I'm not defending Shechem's actions at all, but I am saying that he clearly cared about Dinah. And it seems like from the account that Shechem's actions in his eyes and the eyes of his people were acceptable. Let me say that one more time. We can look on and say that what Shechem did was evil, and it was, but in Shechem's eyes, this was the, this was the way things happened in the ancient world. I mean, this is how women were treated. This is how men might act. So to his people, he didn't do anything ungodly, or he didn't do anything wicked, but Dinah still suffered. Now, the application for us is our families are going to be around worldly people who do things that looks what to them? Acceptable or right. We can be around ungodly or worldly people who are living according to the moral standard of the day or living according to what the world teaches. It is going to look very acceptable to them, and who's going to suffer? Our families, perhaps our daughters. And this brings us to lesson five. A father must protect his family. This is why a father must protect his family. Shechem was just doing what seemed reasonable to him, and there are plenty of young men out there, or even young women. There are plenty of families who will do what seems acceptable to them because it's acceptable to the world, and it'll be detrimental or perhaps devastating to our families. Let me just get you to think about a few things. Let me get you to think about what the world does not frown on. Let me say that one more time. Follow me as we consider what the world does not frown on. Does the world frown on drunkenness? No. Does the world frown on fornication? We're living together outside of marriage. Not only does the world not frown on it, the world actually encourages it. Because how else are you supposed to know if you should spend your life with this person? Is divorce frowned on? I mean, you have a problem with your spouse, you go out and get counsel from a worldly person, you're probably going to be told, you don't have to put up with that any longer. Get a divorce. You deserve to what? You deserve to be happy. You shouldn't have a husband or you shouldn't have a wife that treats you that way. Is foul language or is crudeness frowned upon? What about homosexuality? What about transgenderism? I mean, the number of things that I'm having to talk to my children about today that I never would have imagined even, you know, 15 or even 10 years ago having to discuss with them, explaining why there's a third bathroom. There should be a bathroom for men, a bathroom for women, and my children look, and then you have to explain why there's a third bathroom, or you have to explain why certain people look the way they do, even though God clearly says that people were made male and female, male and female, he created them. And these are the things that are not just accepted, but defended in the world. Do those things pose a threat to our families? Most definitely. So just like Shechem's actions were acceptable in his eyes, his family's eyes, and in the eyes of the people around him, these are the actions or behaviors that are acceptable in the world around us. And so we, have, we gentlemen, we have to protect our families. We have to be sure that these things are not influencing them and, and threatening them. Briefly look back at the end of verse 19 with me. It says, Shechem was the most honored of all his father's house. Now, since Shechem was so respected, since he was a hero among the people, 
he was able to go back to his people and he was able to get them to do this thing and, and for all of the men to be circumcised. Now, instead of reading all the verses, I'm simply going to tell you what happened. Shechem tells the men to be circumcised while they're all recovering. Two of Jacob's sons, it really is one of the darkest chapters in all of the Old Testament. Simeon and Levi, they go through and they murder all of these men while they're recovering and then they take their wealth, they take their flocks. And there's not much we can learn from it except this one thing. Up to this point, I've largely been speaking us, them. That's what you've heard from me, right? Us, them. When I see what Simeon and Levi did, it's just a reminder to me that God's people are also capable of what? Wickedness. We should not be filled with pride. We should not think that we're so much better than everybody else. We should not think that, that us, we're, we're the ones who are you know, so holy or perfect. The fact is we're the main difference, really, between us and them is we're forgiven. That's the difference, the main difference. And so we need to be aware that God's people, some of our own children, we should be aware of it so that we don't become proud because it says pride comes before a fall or to him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. We need to be aware of the fact that God's people can be capable of very wicked actions. That's what I learned. That's the lesson I take away from seeing the behavior of Simeon and Levi in these verses. Now, we're going to skip down to verse 30. Verse 30, Jacob hears about what his sons did, and I want you to notice there's one person that he is very concerned about. Look in verse 30. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, he said, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and they attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Did you notice the repetition of some words? What words did you hear repeated there? Me, my, I. Many people in this account have suffered terribly up to this point. Jacob seems to be feeling bad, very bad, for one person in particular, and who's that? himself. I mean, it's outrageous to me to see his selfishness here. He's been passive through the whole account. He finally speaks up here, and it's all about him. Considering, about, considering what happened to his daughter, even considering what happened to the men of Shechem, I mean, they might have been pagan people, but this was, this was a wicked thing that was done to them. You'd think there would have been some compassion to, toward them. And I don't want to make this a lesson, but I will say as fathers, we should make sure that the words coming out of our mouths are not frequently what? Me, my, I, what I get, what I'm not getting, feeling sorry for ourselves, pitying ourselves. I'll just be honest, gentlemen. Being the spiritual leaders in our homes mean we don't have the liberty for that. Our families need strong men, and I don't mean physically strong. The world might look at men who are physically strong and think there's something to be said for that. What our families need during times of crisis or during trials is men who are strong emotionally, mentally, but especially spiritually to take our families to the word, to sing hymns together, to, to read the Psalms together and provide that encouragement. There's just no place for us, gentlemen, to have the words me, my, I, that sort of selfishness coming out of our mouths regularly. We, we sort of lost, we gave that up when we got married. <laughs> and I'll tell all you young men who are here, if you want to walk down the aisle with a young lady, then you're forfeiting that selfishness. You have to be committed to giving that up because it just doesn't come with, with what God expects of, of husbands and fathers laying down our lives for our families. Now, in verse 30, look at the words, making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. And this brings us to the next lesson, lesson six, sin ruins our witness. Lesson six, sin ruins our witness. Now, one reason at the very beginning I had you read Genesis 33:20 is it says that Jacob had constructed an altar and he called that altar El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. So Jacob built that altar because he knew that God's call on him and his family was to be a witness to the surrounding people. But let, let me just ask you this very plainly. Did sin completely destroy his witness? What sort of witness could Jacob have been to these people after the sin that his family has committed? So back in Genesis 33, he's hoping 
to be a witness, to carry out the mission that has been given to him and his people. But that was, he, he completely lost the opportunity to be any sort of witness because of this sin. Jacob blamed his sons, but plenty of the blame should have fallen on him. Now, since we're focusing on fathers, I'll discuss the application for us. We're not going to be good witnesses as fathers if there's sin in our lives. Really, there's application for all of us because if you're a wife, if, if you're a child, you're not going to be much of a witness to others if there's habitual sin in your life that characterizes you. But for fathers, I'll say this. We, when I say, who are we bad witnesses to? A number of people come to mind. You could say, well, a man who's engaged in habitual sin will be a bad witness to his neighbors. He will be a bad witness to his friends. He will be a bad witness to his co-workers. But I will say, gentlemen, who we should be the most concerned about being bad witnesses to, and that is our wives. That is our children. Because there are not many things that cause us children to see hypocrisy in their parents than habitual sin. There are not many things that are going to drive our children away from Christ faster than gospel preaching parents who don't what? Live it out. When children hear their parents talking about Jesus, but those parents aren't showing a love for Jesus, there are not many things that's going to destroy a children's faith faster because those parents look like such hypocrites. So we all sin, but our lives should not be characterized by it. And I'll just, that means if we're, you know, our lives should not be characterized by anger. Our lives should not be characterized by drunkenness. Our lives should not be characterized by the mistreatment of our wives or the mistreatment of our children. Our lives should not be characterized by laziness. Now, the world, if I say, tell me about sin, I think what comes to mind is like lying, stealing, murder. But the fact that Proverbs discusses working and laziness means that those are moral issues. Laziness is a sin, just like it is moral to work and to work hard. So laziness is another sin that can destroy a father's witness to his family. When we look at things we shouldn't, I don't know, oh, I don't know, I'm being sincere when I say this, I don't know how a woman could respect her husband when she knows he looks at things that he shouldn't. And I have had people come into my office, and I've looked at a woman, and I've said, you know, God's word commands you to respect your husband. God's word commands you to submit to him. And do you know what she says? I want to. I wish I could, but I know what he looks at, and I can't. No matter how hard I try, I just think of the man he is, and I can't muster any respect for him up in my heart. And do you know what I say to that? Not much. There's not much that I can say, because how can a wife be expected to respect a man who who can't control himself, who doesn't rip his eyes away when he should? If we want our children to embrace the gospel, if we want our wives to be able to respect us, they've got to see the gospel working in our lives. Now, I, and I'll say this, gentlemen, if you're listening to this and you're, you're feeling very convicted, I don't know any of you. I obviously don't have any agenda. So that's why it's nice to be able to preach this here versus how difficult it was in my own church. Um, and I mean this sincerely. If you're hearing this and you're convicted about this and you know that your family is aware of some sins that you've committed as a father or husband... This is what you need to do. You need to gather your family together. Up here, give me your attention. You need to gather your family together, and you need to get on your knees before them, confess your sin to the Lord, and ask your family to forgive you. And say, I know that I have failed. I know that I have sinned. I know that I have done this, and I know that you know that I have done this, and I am begging you to please forgive me. I want to be a better man. I'm asking you to pray for me. Pray for me to have victory in this area. Hold me accountable. Because if your family already knows about it, there's no sense keeping it from them longer and having them think even longer that you're a hypocrite. Get them together and seek their forgiveness. Bring them around you. And and if they see you cry, that is a wonderful thing. If they see your heart broken over the sins that you've committed as a man, then they will be able to forgive you that much easier. And pray and ask them. Say, I covet your prayers for me to grow in this area and to be a better man. Now, I know this has been convicting, and I know that this has been a dark chapter that we've been looking at, and what I want to do is I want to conclude with some encouragement. Well, don't think, let me see what time it is. Don't think we're concluding right yet. I don't want to get you too excited. Um, There's a little longer, so don't think this is the conclusion to start closing your Bibles. Jacob does make it to Bethel, and here's some of the encouragement. He seems to have learned. 
So what I was just talking about men doing, Jacob seems to have done that. He looks like a, a different man. He looks like a stronger leader in his home in the next chapter. Look at Genesis 35, verse 1. <clears throat> Actually, let me tell you something interesting. You see right there where it says God? See right there, Genesis 35, 1, and it begins with God? In chapter 34, there is no hint of God. There is no mention of him. Nobody prays. Nobody looks to God. There is no repentance. Nothing looks like God. Nobody looks for God. The entire chapter is a chapter of ungodliness. But when this chapter begins, we get to hear from God. Chapter 35, verse 1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, dwell there, make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So you see God here, and he says the same thing to Jacob that he said what? Or that he said when? Back in the earlier chapters. Do you know why that is? Because God's word doesn't change. Just because you delay or just because we're disobedient doesn't mean that God's expectation for us ever changes. And so if we compromise or if we sin, when we repent and we turn back to God, he just expects of us what he expected before because his word, his instruction, his commands to us don't change. So God says the same thing to him to go on to Bethel. And look at this leadership from Jacob. Be encouraged by this. Look at verse 2. Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress. This is where God did want an altar built and has been with me wherever I have gone. And every time I read these verses, they refresh me. They encourage me to see Jacob taking on this leadership in his home that he did earlier. So Jacob and his family, they've been through a lot because of his poor spiritual leadership, but he turned things around, and this brings us to our last lesson. Lesson seven, part one. It's never too late for a father to lead. It's never too late for a father to lead. And so I was talking earlier, and I don't know if you're a father and you're listening to this, and you're convicted or you're broken or you're saying, I wish I would have done things differently and oh, how I have been as a father and husband and I regret it so terribly. Well, here's the wonderful news for you. It is never too late. This is what Jacob teaches. I mean, how wonderful is it that God records so honestly the failures of the heroes? I mean, Jacob's one of the heroes. He's one of the patriarchs. How gracious is it of God to record his life so honestly that we can be encouraged? And one of the great lessons from Jacob is it is never too late. No matter how much you've messed up, I suspect you have not messed up as badly as Jacob. And he was still able to turn things around. And I mean, how encouraging. What if you read Genesis 34 or what if you're at Genesis 35 and Jacob had it together before this? How encouraging is that? What if Genesis 34, he looks like this great spiritual leader? Well, then Genesis 35 would just be further, further convicting. But here's the graciousness of God being shown that he leads after having failed so terribly. Look what he says. Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves. Let us arise, go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God. He firmly calls his family to repentance. He shows the level of leadership here in his home that was not shown in the previous chapter. And so if you're discouraged and you're saying, I haven't prayed with my family like I should, I haven't been in the word myself like I should, I have not served the body of Christ, I have not been as involved with my church family as I should, I have not led my family to lead, or I have not, led, I have not been a leader in my home to have my family involved in the body of Christ like I should then be encouraged by Jacob's example that you can pick yourself up, you can dust yourself off, and you can do things differently. And look at this wonderful response from his family. Verse 4, So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had. They gave the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And this brings us to the second part of Lesson 7. It's never too late for a father to lead, part 2. And when he does, his family often follows. And when he does, his family often follows. Now, what if Jacob called for his family's repentance and his family said what? No. The idols that Rachel gave, these were the idols that she had taken from Laban. 
I mean, these are the idols that she had very manipulatively hidden under the saddle, went to great lengths to keep from him. And so they were dear to her, is my point, but she was still willing to give them over when Jacob called for them. And so it's wonderfully encouraging to me. I mean, how, how discouraging would it be to see a terrible response from his family? But instead, you get to see them giving up these idols. It's just refreshing and encouraging to see this. And it has application for us. Gentlemen, hopefully we recognize the consequences of being passive in our homes. And if you're convicted about that, then when you decide to lead, more than likely your family will follow. I have not heard that many women complain about their husbands leading and them having to submit. I just don't hear that. What I hear most often from wives is what? My husband won't lead. I don't hear wives complaining saying, I have to submit. I hear women saying, I wish my husband would lead. I wish he would be a spiritual leader in my home. Women want a man that they can look up to and respect and follow. And so gentlemen, if you wanna be that, you're gonna look to your side and you're gonna see a wife who is very thankful for that to take place. And I'm not saying your kids are always going to be thrilled about every family Bible study. You know, when we're having our family Bible studies and, and they conclude, you know, after 30 minutes, I, I don't often get to hear my kids saying, keep going, daddy, keep going. You know, it doesn't, doesn't happen that much. So you can't always, I mean, my poor kids, they have to listen to me so often during our family Bible studies and then at church. So the point is, don't expect that it's going to be this totally thrilling thing where everyone's jumping up and down, but I am saying more than likely they will follow. They will follow. And I think one of the greatest obstacles to this <clears throat> is fatigue. I want to be sensitive to you, gentlemen. I know you work hard. I know you just want to get, you're tired when you get home. You just want to get home and do what? Relax or pass out on the couch. But you know what? Your family needs you. They need you to come home and to be involved and to be active and to lead. I know it's tiring to pray with your family. I know it's tiring to read the word with your family, but our families need us to be spiritual leaders. And here's the thing. When you feel overwhelmed, especially when you're tired and weary, I want to say this. Let me encourage you. Remember what Jesus said, because Jesus invites you to come to him when you're tired. He invites you to come to him when you're fatigued. Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Jesus says, "'Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you.'" For, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so the Lord, gentlemen, he stands ready to help. The Lord wants us to be strong, godly men, strong, godly fathers and husbands in our home, and he stands ready to help and assist us in that. Now, ladies, maybe you've been listening to this and you've been saying, amen, I hope my husband has been listening. You know, I want my husband to be a leader, a leader in the home. I want to be honest with you, ladies. Sometimes when women say this, they say, I want my husband to lead, but what they really mean is I want my husband to do what I want him to do. And that's not expecting your husband to lead. So if you want your husband to lead, you need to do what? You need to support him. You need to encourage him. You need to help him. Don't chop him off at the knees. Don't second guess the decisions that he makes. You play a huge part in his leadership in the home. Most men are nervous at best or terrified to pray and to read the word with their families. Your husband needs your support. And finally, children, I'd say this, all the children here, be a blessing to your father. Support the decisions that he makes. Strive to be obedient to him. Don't make it a headache when he makes decisions or tells you no because he's doing what he thinks is best. If you have a father and he prays with you, if you have a father and he opens the word with you, do you know what you should say to him, children? Thank you. Thank you that I have been given a godly father who will open the word with me. If you have a father, if you're sitting here today, children, you need to be thankful that you have a father who will take you to church because there are a lot of children who can't even say that. So be thankful for the godly father that the Lord has given you. Now, if you have any questions about anything from the sermon if you're at all burdened or convicted by anything that I've said and I can serve you in any way, I would, I'll be up front after service. I don't know, are you up front after service? Are there elders? He's, okay, Pastor Carey will be at the back then and I'll be up front. So you'll catch one of us however you want, up front or back. I'd consider it a privilege to have the opportunity to speak with you or to be able to pray with you or to answer any of your questions. Thank you for this opportunity to share God's word with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the example that you give us uh, with Jacob. 
help us to be, myself included, help all of us to be strong spiritual leaders in our homes, help us to be fathers and husbands who, who um, bring our families, lead them toward Christ. I, I pray especially for any fathers who hear this this morning and it hits them hard because maybe they haven't been doing this, that by your grace they can live, and by the gospel at work in their hearts and lives that they, we can all live up to that standard that is set in the pages of scripture. I pray for the wives that they can be that they can help and they can support their husbands. And I pray for the children that they can make their father's leadership in the home a blessing for them too, Lord. We want to serve you. We want Christ to be exalted in our homes and in our lives. And that's why we pray all this in his name. Amen. Well, thank you, Pastor Scott. Why don't we all stand as we close in song?